friends, welcome back. It is yet another great episode of the Field and Garden podcast in the series Bug Talk with my friend Rhonda. Hi, Rhonda. Hey, Lisa. So if you guys haven't um, joined us before on one of these, Rhonda is the warehouse manager at the Gardener's Workshop, and she and I are kindred spirits because we are both like so into bugs and insects and bees and all the things that maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we weren't maybe so into until we got to know them a little better, and that's what this podcast um, series is all about is introducing you guys to the great golly day the great outdoors and all the workers out there that you know that are out there doing a job because you know we've kind of named ourselves bug huggers right Rhonda yeah (laughs) (laughs) so we love talking and sharing information about all these great creatures because y'all whether you realize it or not we are nothing without the without insects so we are super happy today to have a guest with us dr barbara abraham hi barbara hello and she is going to talk to us about native bees today and so let me just give just a minor little lead into this so i think when the word bee is mentioned most people instantly think of honeybees which we have nothing against honeybees, y'all, but honeybees are imports. They are not native bees in our country. They need to have a, we have to give them a place to live and care for them most often. And what we don't realize is there are thousands of other varieties of bees that truly live right outside our back door. And I am personally in love with, we have a big community of longhorn bees here on our farm and they are the cutest, most cuddly little things you would ever want to meet. And that's what started my love affair with them. So Rhonda, what was your first meeting with native bees versus, you know, I think so many of us think about honeybees and it's not that we have anything against them, but the picture is much wider than that, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, bumblebees, people are familiar with bumblebees, and I guess they think honeybees, um, but there's so many other varieties out there. Um, I mean, if you think of, I don't know what the common birds are anywhere else, but around here, you know, you see a cardinal, you see a robin, and that's kind of how honeybees and and bumblebees are, but there's so many other kinds of birds and bees um, that we just either don't recognize them as bees, they might look like wasps, um, they might like look like flies, but they're actually bees. So there's there's just such a variety. And anyway, I, I'm glad Barbara's here to talk to us about bees. And I know she loves trees too. So she'll have, I'm sure, some things to talk about that. Yeah. And, you know, these are the guys that pollinate the greater world, right? So Barbara, we'll just kind of let you join this conversation. And first, I was really interested to read your story of how you chose your your line of your career path um you want to tell us about that about how you thought you might be a veterinarian or you you weren't sure which path you were going to go on how did you come to be a bug person i guess that's the real question here well when i went off to college i thought i was either going to be a biology major or an english major and i chose the biology and then as you said i was interested in veterinary medicine 
Well, in those days, I'm, I'm giving away my age here, but in those days, it was a much more even of a male dominated group. And so when I said I wanted to be a veterinary, veterinarian, they took me into this huge barn where all the veterinary students were working on cows on these big tables. And they said to me, do you think you could pull a calf? And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> so then I decided I wanted wildlife biology. And the, the professor I spoke to was very nice. And he said, um, you know, we're happy to have you, but you're not gonna get a job when you get done because they don't want women. And so then I went to zoology and majored in zoology and got a minor in botany and one in genetics. And then when I went on for my master's, I did animal behavior working with grasshoppers. And then when I went for my PhD, I had a research assistantship, but I didn't like the professor I was going to have to work with. And he was working on sagebrush defoliator moths. And that just didn't turn me on. And so I went <laughs> I went ahead and took a teaching assistantship, which turned out very well, and, um, and, and studied spiders with someone who was later the president of the Ecological Society. Um, and then I worked with spiders for 30 years. And then I was working with some students at Hampton University where I, my career was mostly at Hampton University for 31 years, my full-time career. And we were building a butterfly garden. I thought this would be something the students would be interested in. It was a program through the Ecological Society. And so we built this butterfly garden and lo and behold, the skippers loved it, but there were more bees than there were butterflies. And so that got me started with bees. I, I started going over to Mountain Lake Biological Station in clear in Western Virginia, almost West Virginia, and studied bees for a few years. And then for health reasons, I had to quit that research, but I've, I've been active at the city level with educational programs. Uh, I, I retired in 2016 from full-time, went over to Christopher Newport as an adjunct, and I'm still teaching basically part-time there and, and working with the city of Hampton on the B-City USA Hampton Committee. That is awesome. Long that trail. Is, <laughs> but you know what? I mean, isn't that the way that this all goes? I mean, so often, I mean, who would have even known back when you were in college that these things were even out there available for you to pursue, right? right. So... Barbara, talk to us about the whole native bee scene. I mean, what do you say to people that aren't familiar, which, you know, so we have a lot of listeners that are home gardeners, lots of flower farmers, um, people growing to sell the cut flowers, and just, and most of them, as we try to coach them, are, you know, pesticide-free, um, just really doing everything they can to encourage um nature to be, you know, to restore nature outside. So tell us what role these bees play and who they might be and how that all works. Well, the interesting thing to me is that there are about 20,000 species of bees in the world and they're all native somewhere. So when I say native bee in Hampton, Virginia, I'm talking about bees that are normally found in Hampton, Virginia, that they haven't been brought in to pollinate something, you know, certain bees like honeybees and some other, some others that are native to the country are, are carried around to pollinate crops. 
But the ones that live here, as you said, you can have, well, you know, Doug Tallamy has more bees than most people, <laughs> but, yes. but you can probably have a hundred species of bees in your backyard. In Virginia, there are over 400 species of bees, um, probably 400 native and more than that, there are a few others besides honeybees that are not native. Um, but 77% of native bees are solitary. They don't live in colonies like honeybees. They don't interact with each other. And the interesting thing about that to the home gardener is that because honeybees are protecting a hive, they can get pretty aggressive if you're by their hive. But since native bees do not protect their nests as a rule, bumblebees may be the exception, although bumblebees don't stay. But, but the moral to the story is you're not going to get stung by anything unless you're being really dopey and flying your hands around, you know, trying to get rid of them. Then, yeah, you might get stung. Or if it lands on you and you try to swat it, you might get stung. But they, they basically don't sting. Uh, bumblebees do something that's really interesting called buzz pollination. And if you get close enough to them, you can hear them buzzing in order to shake the pollen out of the anthers of things like tomatoes um, and blueberries. And you can put your head down there to hear them because you can't hear them from three feet away unless your ear is closer. They won't sting you. They're too busy doing what they're doing and you're not anywhere near the nest, you're in the flowers and they won't sting. So that's one of the first things I always tell people is you don't have to worry about getting stung. I mean, even if one lands on you, it's more likely to try to, the sweat bees, you know, will kind of lap up your sweat, but they're not going to sting you unless you mess with them. So that's- Back of the, that's, back of the collar. That's, that's usually where they get me is, oh, it's on that on the back of my neck and I go to touch it. And I think that's the last time I got stung by a, a bee. Yeah, the only time I've ever been stung by a bee was a sweat bee and it was in my collar and it felt like a stiff tag. You know, sometimes before you wash your clothes or after you wash them a couple times, the tags stick you. And the second time it happened, happened I woke up. But unfortunately, I was out in the field with two young male students and I couldn't really take the shirt off to get the bee out of it. So, and I'm on the prairie, it's very flat. I couldn't, I couldn't hide behind anything or go around a hill, but that's the only time that I have ever been stung. So they, they don't tend to sting. Honeybees are much more aggressive if they're by the hive, especially. Yeah, I have definitely found that to be true in our big, I mean, I have a big commercial garden and we have a, a beekeeper about, I would guess, probably five acres away from me. He has 19 hives and his bees spend a lot of time over here. And one of the things that I have really observed over here is, um, you know, and I spend a lot of time out in our garden because we're cutting flowers, right? So probably longer than the average gardener, maybe. Um, so we watch so much of the behaviors and you are so right. Honeybees 
particularly with certain flowers, which I would guess, this is non-scientific, I would guess that they're at the height of offering the, the nectar or the pollen that the bees want because they get a little crazy. I mean, you can just see the honeybees crawling over each other to get to it. And they're really aggressive to the native bees. I mean, that's what we really have observed here on the farm, particularly um poppy giant poppy pods um those poppy flowers that are so enormous must have so much pollen that the native bee i mean the honeybees really really get quite aggressive with each other and they'll take out i mean we've seen them wrestle native bees down um so that's um yeah so i totally agree with you about the honeybee thing that they can definitely get a little bullyish i would describe them as would you say and the interesting thing is that because they live in hives, there are so many of them when, when there's something blooming, there can be 50,000 honeybees in one hive. And the native bees, of course, being more spread out, more solitary, uh, there aren't as many of them. Many of them are smaller. And so there, there has been some recent research about honeybee competition with with native bees, mm. although some people still don't want to admit that it's a problem. But in particular, evidently, and this is not personal experience, but evidently people who raise large uh, numbers of honeybees to, to take around like to the almonds in California, in the off season will put the hives on public land and they, they can be a serious competitor with native bees in those areas. Probably, you know, when something like an apple orchard or an almond orchard or something is blooming, there's enough bloom going on that the native bees can still find food. But uh, in an area, particularly if it's a drier area, desert area, for example, or a plains area, uh, there won't be that much blooming and there's something for them, but they're out competing the native bees and they're not getting uh, as much food as they would if people wouldn't put their honeybees there. Right, that makes perfectly good sense. And yeah. go ahead, Rhonda. I was gonna say that kind of brings up the, the fact that honeybees, well, they live, like you said, great numbers in hives all together and are generalists, but there are a lot of bees um, that are specialist on a particular plant and that plant and the bee are codependent of each other um, you know both depend on each other for the for the next generation really another thing about that is that um, when a bee specializes on one or a few plants of course that plant is only going to be blooming at a certain time and so the bee's life cycle corresponds to the plant's life cycle the bee will be an adult flying around pollinating when the plant is blooming. And that can be a very brief time, especially with the spring ephemerals like spring beauty or uh, something like that, where the bees that pollinate them uh, and climate change is messing that up. It's causing a disjunct between when the plants flower and when the bees are adults to pollinate them. So in the future, that's only going to get worse. Wow. Yeah, the, the range of plants and the range of uh, insects, you know, moving. Yeah. 
time and space. Uh, bumblebees, like honeybees, are very general. And I think that probably this is an adaptation for needing that pollen and nectar through the year, because of course those, well, not the bumblebee colonies, they die off. And the only thing that remains is the fertilized queens to overwinter. The honeybee colonies, of course, just keep going and going and going. Uh, but um, the, the bumblebee colonies are an annual colony, but still they are active a little bit longer, a little earlier in the spring, a little bit later in the fall uh, than a lot of bees. So a lot of bees have, you know, maybe a month when they're adults and flying around and the rest of the time they're in the egg, larva and pupal stages in the ground or in a stem. So, Barbara, you mentioned a minute ago that, um, or I wasn't sure if it was you or Rhonda, maybe about how tiny some of these little native bees can be. So give us a comparison. Like, do we have some as little as the lead on a pencil or are they bigger than that? Or I think that helps. I think some people think all tiny bugs flying are gnats or flies. Right, right. So let's help describe to people what they might be seeing that, in fact, could possibly be a bee. A native okay. bee. Well, the biggest ones, of course, are the carpenter bees and the queen bumblebees are about that size. Now, there's another uh, non-native bee that's longer and skinnier, but the tiniest bees, I have a really great slide I stole off the internet, uh, of a one of the tiny little bees on the eye of a um, carpenter bee. And of wow. course, it didn't take up the whole eye. So carpenter bees are a big bee, but they're not a big animal, you know, right, so right. Something sitting on the eye of a carpenter bee. I think Perdita is the, the tiniest bee that we have. Uh, you got a Perdita there? Somewhere. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They are very, very small. You can hardly see them. And obviously that isn't going to be able to sting through your skin. Oh, and by the way, only the females sting, of course. Wow. Yeah, I, had one, I had one land on my arm yesterday. Of course, I didn't have my phone to take its picture, but I guess it was a sweat bee. You know, that, anything that lands on me, I figure that's what it is. But it was so small. It was a little fatter than a grain of rice, but shorter than a grain of rice. And I tried to walk it up into the house, but it decided it, it had enough of me. So prefer the flower. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Kind of camera shy, right? Yeah. So Barbara, tell us, um, what can people do um, to invite and encourage native bees and then how to help them once you have them in your environment, in your garden? What would be some of the things that you would encourage people to do? Oh, that's a great question. And a lot of your audience is probably already doing two thirds to three quarters of it because the main thing is probably planting the flowers, planting a variety of flowers. So you get some that those specialist bees might be specializing on and then planting flowers that are blooming as early in the spring as you can, as late in the fall. So you have blooms through the season. So the food source is one element. A lot of people don't realize that bees need water, particularly in dry times. Um, honeybees, a lady around the corner from me, Rhonda knows who that is, had a beehive a couple of years ago and we had a really dry summer. And I found my bird bath 
And there were honeybees head down, drinking out of the birdbath, all the way around the birdbath. And the poor birds, of course, there was so much coming and going, the birds wouldn't go. So having a water source, and a lot of people say to put out shallow dish, put some rocks or something for them to stand on. Uh, I found that that concrete birdbath was rough enough that they could hold on really good. And I never got them to, to go to any other kind of source of water. But a source of water is important. And I think what a lot of, and, and not using pesticides, which you already said your people don't do, that's, that's very, very important. But the, the, the last element of that is habitat. And 70... 70% of bees nest in the ground. And they, a lot of them are too small to dig through mulch. So having some open areas for them to nest in, particularly if the soil isn't real solid clay or anything, and it doesn't have to be real big, but um, you know, not mulching every square inch of your yard. The other 30% live in stems so we need to be messy gardeners. You know, I think it's National Geographic or Audubon or somebody that's saying leave the leaves. We don't need to only leave the leaves because it's mostly, you know, lepidopterans, the caterpillars that, that um, have their pupae in the leaves over winter. We need to leave standing stems uh, because these hollow pithy stems are where a lot of bees lay their eggs, have their nests. And it's, it's really hard for us, especially if it's in the front of your house, to leave those stems up until late spring, because some of the bees are not, you know, they're not coming out in the winter. They're laying the eggs in the fall uh, or even earlier, and then they're not coming out till the next spring. So we really need to leave those standing stems uh, until late spring so those bees can come out and not be destroyed when we clean up our gardens. So I have a question that was a great, I enjoyed that so much because let me ask you this. So are bees specific to what hollow stems they have because um, hydrangeas, which is a huge crop for everybody in the South, right? We all have hydrangeas out in our garden typically. Um, we, my hydrangeas all have hollow stems and we oh. have purposely left them thinking, I mean, I've actually seen somebody emerge from one. I did not identify it. Um, but would that, is that what we're talking about is those types of stems or is it specific shrubs that, that the bees are drawn to, or is it just any hollow stem, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I do not think that they are specific to the okay. stems that they nest in. I think that anything that's the right size, depending on the size of the bee, and is hollow or, you know, with a pith in there that they can pull out to put their eggs in there. Right. Uh, I, I grow these huge prairie plants called cup plants, where the leaves clasp the stem. They're not very good for cut flowers, you know, because the flowers are about this big and the plants can be seven feet tall. Uh, but they have kind of a squared off stem, almost like a mint, but it's big. And I, you know, I keep looking because I've read that they will nest in there. I've never seen one. The problem is we don't have as many bees as we used to. So watching for things to emerge or looking for emergence holes or, or nest holes is going to be time consuming compared to the results that you're going to get. All right. So I have two questions thinking about 
people and marketing that the world has taken up. What do you think about all of these bee nests that they sell, you know, with straws in them and all kinds of stuff? What is what is your general comment to people about that? Okay, I, I, I'm not going to say I don't like them because I think anything that, that people uh, are aware of that makes them more aware of the bees and thinking positive of the bees is a good thing. Now, one thing that they have to know about those bee houses is you just can't use them from year to year to year. You must replace the straws inside those holes. And if you don't have one that you can do that with, then you know, you're gonna get other things nesting in there besides bees, but you're also gonna get parasites of the bees. And so if you don't replace the nest straws annually, you're, you're probably not helping the bees at all. I personally don't use them. I've, I've now got three that people have given me and I carry them around to show people at educational events. But you know, bees didn't, didn't evolve with little wooden houses. Um, so they didn't, I'm an ecologist at heart and I, you know, that's what my degree is in is it's actually in ecology, not entomology. And so I apply the ecological principles, you know, I like the diverse garden. I like the natural and native garden and bee houses, you know, they can help if you're doing it right, but you really have to be on it. You have to do your research about how to use it, where to put it, and this sort of thing. Okay, and so here's the other question that I, or I, for your explanation of this, because when you said that bees, you know, leave bare ground so they can nest, I know what popped into 99% of people's minds when they heard that is what people call Ground, ground bees, bees, which are in fact not ground bees at all, right? Are they yellow jackets? Is that the correct wasps? There that... are a number of wasps also. There are sand wasps. There are cicada killers, which are huge. They are probably the biggest wasps around. I have seen those, but you know, and, I'm talking yeah, about, about the those yellow jackets are the ones people hate because they're so aggressive. Yes. You, know, you run your lawnmower exactly. over one of those nests. Again, they are social, so they're more aggressive and there are larger numbers of them. And yeah, they can nest in the ground. And, and that's so when people get stung. They're not ground bees at all. Nope. They're ground yellow jackets. You. And they're just protecting their family when they attack you, basically. Yeah. Try right? putting your lawnmower over a nest. I've done it. Yeah. <laughs> So, and, and that's why I say to people, I was the person that was terrified before I got educated, you know, and once you realize what to do and what not to do and how to help and what they do for your garden, yes, then it changes everything, right? A lot of people say, you know, I have flowers on my squash, but I never get any fruit. Well, there's a specific bee that pollinates members of the squash family. And if those bees aren't around, you're not gonna have any fruit, regardless of how many flowers you have. So if you use lots of pesticides in your garden, you're doing yourself in. It's true. I mean, and thinking about the hollow stems, it is so hard, maybe in a front yard, but I mean, it's just so much, when you think about how many homes you could be providing, by just, and you can keep the edges of your garden tidy. We're not talking about having a jungle that is 
unruly that your neighbors aren't going to be happy with. I mean, I've got more watchers than anybody else because my farm's right in the middle of the city and we make a point. The edges are very tidy, but you come inside and we have huge native borders and, you know, I mean, there's you, there's a place for everything. So everybody can add that. Um, so what else do we need to know for people to really embrace and encourage these guys to come to their garden? Anything? Well, I think just looking closely. I mean, there are some that are iridescent emerald green. There are some that look a little bit like wasps that are bright orange. Uh, they are actually kleptoparasites where they go in and they, they don't make their own nests. They take somebody else's food, kill the babies and, and eat the food. Um, but I think that once you start looking at them and realizing what they do for you, the, the pollination, you know, we wouldn't have any, hardly any, well, any fruits probably without um, bees and other insect pollinators. Uh, you know, things like corn and, and grains are wind pollinated, but, but fruits are not. Fruits are animal pollinated. And in this country, the, the bees are the main pollinators, although there are other insects. So I think the more you know, the more interest you will have. But I think just even looking at them, some of them are so beautiful. Uh, if you're not afraid to get up close and personal with them and, and take a good look. Well, I think if I can get up close and personal, anybody can, because I used to really be pretty daggum terrified. So Barbara, is there a book that you would recommend to newbies for people that um, might want to try to identify or Rhonda I think Rhonda has a I, favorite she's going to show us one why you're getting yours Barbara I have let's see what she's got I've got the bees in your backyard by Joseph Wilson and Olivia Carroll she has a stack oh yeah yeah she does I so, didn't I didn't uh, get all of them but here a uh, Xerxes Society Xerxes. for Invertebrate oh that's backwards isn't it the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate um, Conservation is the mother organization of Bee City USA, which has cities and campuses as affiliates. And Hampton is one of them. I guess Virginia Beach just became another one. They have one called 100 Plants to Feed the Monarchs. Um, I have one, another one from the Xerxes Society called Attracting Native Pollinators. We have that. Uh, here's... Um, Gretchen Laboon is a, um, a, a scientific researcher on bees, and she did one, she's a co-author of one called The Bee-Friendly Garden. Um, but Heather Holm has a number of them. Is that one that you, I can't remember which one you- I, I have Heather's uh, book on um, wasps, I think. Oh, but that's yes. the latest one, yes. Okay. Um, so maybe if Barbara, would, Barbara, would you mind sending your favorite list of books and their authors to Rhonda and we can put that in the show notes for people for them to peruse and see which one fits, you know, where they want to start because you know, as we know, we need them all, you know, yes. but you start with just one usually and then it just leads you to another one and another one and we'll put Rhonda's and yours favorite native bee books just to kind of introduce folks to you know what to plant and how to you know I mean it's the same as with us right so you said diversity you know we like a lot of different things in our life and then we need early and late and constant flowers blooming they need water they do not need any 
chemicals in their life, no pesticides, which we're big about, and they need habitat and they need some spaces without mulch so they can get to the soil, right? Yeah. Spray yourself, spray yourself, not your yard. (laughs) There you go. Self-sacrifice. There you go. I love you, Rhonda. That's it. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for being with here to us today on the bug talk. This was really, um, Rhonda really is a bee nut. Yeah. Yeah. She loves bees. I love bees too. I mean, you, you learn to love them more and more, the more you learn about them. And, um, thank you for sharing your knowledge. And it's nice to know that you're a local to us. Um, so Barbara is right here in in town well the city next to us i'm in newport news she's in hampton or she's but she's teaching at christopher newport university and um welcome to newport news and rhonda thank you for bringing barbara thanks into our circle here barbara yeah thank you and i i think we i think we have to have you back and talk about spiders okay oh i love spiders i didn't used to See, I probably shouldn't talk about this because it's not about bees. But yeah, this morning on my way out the back door, I had to stop because one of the whatever it's the zipper garden spider, you know, she had made a web across the back door. So we had to kind of rearrange her and move her to the side. But she was ready to catch, I think, a small dog on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, y'all, this is what happens to you when you make gardening and farming such a part of your life, easily distracted by bugs is what Rhonda shirts it. (laughs) Well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. And we appreciate you and all your work so very, very much. Thank you. And thanks, Rhonda, for joining us. And friends, if you're enjoying the podcast, it helps us so much if you give a review on whatever app you listen to your podcasts on that helps them show our podcast to more people. And if you want to learn more about the Gardener's Workshop and the work that we're doing, head on over to thegardenersworkshop.com and we would love to meet you there. Until we meet again, friends, ciao. Bye-bye.